Device Nation. Greetings and salutations, Device Nation. You're home for the greatest show on earth, and we know that show is Medical Device Sales with ideas, stories, and interviews to take you from good to great. This is Kevin Brown, your voice of provision in times of excessive hoarding. I hope you are having a great day. Hope you had a great week. I was doing great until Friday, and then I saw the last elective case get tied up, and there we are looking at the schedule for the coming next few weeks, and I am looking into the abyss As I know, a lot of you are right there with me looking into that big hole in the ground. So what now? What do we do? Abandon all hope, ye who enter here? There's a better way. We're going to talk about that today. And we're also going to talk with free legal advice alert, Andy Anderson of the Horton Law Firm in Greenville, South Carolina. He's going to go over that document we all have to sign. We're going to give you a fair and balanced look at the non-compete agreement. So hang around for that. It's going to be good, good stuff. So let's look at the here and now. Crazy, crazy times. I went to the grocery store the other day, and it's the bizarre things that we're running out of. The toilet paper, paper towels, perishables. I'm thinking this is the time for canned goods, right? Lots and lots and lots of spam. What do I need toilet paper for? We sell pulsatile irrigators. So let's address the here and now by looking back in time just a little bit, the early 1900s to be exact. Theologian Reinhold Niebuhr penned something that we have seen on the wall, we've seen it on pillows, we've seen it on plaques, we've seen it on coffee mugs. We know it as the Serenity Prayer. The New York Times said it was originally used for soldiers, weary parents. We can all appreciate that if you've had kids and recovering alcoholics. God grant me the serenity. Let's say it all together. We all know this thing. God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Now, what does that have to do with medical device reps? Well, it has a lot to do with us right now. Let's look at the beginning of this, the serenity to accept the things that I cannot change. When I first started in sales many, many years ago, I remember we had a sign in the break room that said, if it's to be, it's up to me. And as a fresh-faced, freshly scrubbed rep with all this energy and excitement, I was so ready to take on the world, take that bull by the horns, and if it was going to happen, it was going to be by me. And you know what? Time has a funny way of just changing your perspective. As I've done this a while, I think there's a lot of time and chance in this thing and things that you have absolutely no control over. Surgeons retiring, surgeons moving, products disappearing, territory changes. I could go on and on and on. So many things that you have absolutely no control over. Where we are now, we don't have any control over elective cases and when they will ever come back online. Chuck Colson said many, many years ago, life is 10% what happens to you, and 90% how you respond to it. So can we have serenity, serenity now, in the midst of all these things that we can't change and some of them that look a little scary, right? I test very high in responsibility. I took that Strength Finders test years ago. I suggest you all do it. It is awesome. I'm going to do a whole episode on it at some point. And like many things that you test high in, it is also your challenge. So Testing high in responsibility means I take ownership over things. I make them my own. 
and try to do the best I can because I feel ultimately I am responsible. That's a good thing, right? However, the flip side, the negative side of the battery on that issue is I take responsibility a lot of times for things that I have absolutely no control over, and then I get all angsty and anxious and frustrated about it when it was completely needless. I had no control over it to begin with. I remember being in a case at Duke with a very proficient surgeon. We got halfway through the revision. Things were not going well. He looked at me and he said, you know, I'm starting to get that not-so-fresh feeling. And you know what? So was I. And I was taking on all of his anxiousness, all of his angst, when at that moment I should have been the counterbalance, not speaking super positive and joking around trying to put a spin on it, not at all, but being a counterbalance to that angst, being steady and calm. That's what we have to be in the operating room. That's what we've always had to have in the operating room. And I think now, more importantly than ever, we need to be that way and we need to be that way with our family and our friends and everybody around us because there's a lot of potentially scary things out there. Are people going to feel encouraged having been around us? Are we going to just jump right in there with them? Serenity to accept the things I can't change. Now, as a side note, these other two aspects, courage and wisdom, the courage to change the things I can. I think this job takes courage just to go in the operating room and do what we do takes a lot of courage. It takes a lot of courage to be able to look at the things that I can't change and say, I am not going to stress about that. I am not going to take it on because it's not going to change anything. Who by worrying can add a single day to their life? So one of the things that I can change is how I respond to the things that I can't. I'll never forget when I first started this job, I was very green. I got thrown into a knee revision with a surgeon who didn't do a lot of them. I had a surgical technique in my hand and little else. He made the incision and he looked at me and goes, so what do I do now? And I thought, if you're asking me that, we are in so much trouble here. It was only courage that got me through that case. It takes courage to look in the mirror and say, you know, if I'm going to be the best device rep, if I'm going to be the best parent, the best spouse, I'm going to have to change. Nobody is born into this world knowing how to do all this stuff. Nobody is born into this world knowing how to manage what we're facing right now. It takes courage to look at what we can change to do things a little differently. I'm doing a lot of things differently now. How I touch door handles, how I use keypads at the operating room, what I do with my scrubs. It's a tough time to be alive right now if you're an OCD person, isn't it? I'm even taking showers When I come into the house after being in the hospital, I know maybe that's a little excessive. I don't know, but I am open to make changes. Humility is always open to make changes and be able to embrace them willingly. I remember a stupid change that came along many years ago when they made us start wearing that dumb red hat. We all felt like Ronald McDonald. We were waiting for them to issue us those long shoes that curled up at the end. I was going to one of my hospitals And on the way there, I stopped at Walgreens to pick up a prescription. And in the window, they had those red noses. So I got this genius idea. I went to purchasing, and I showed the girl they had just hired up front my red hat and my red nose. And I said, you're not going to believe what they're making us do now. And she's like, what? I said, we have to wear these red hats and red noses so everybody knows who's a rep and who's not. And she was absolutely horrified. And the more horrified she got, the more guilty I felt for pulling that over on her. Everybody's a comedian. Embracing 
change is critical if you're going to do this thing in life. So let's look at wisdom, the quality of having experience, knowledge, and good judgment. Now, I would argue that just because you have experience doesn't mean you're wise. A lot of people make the same mistakes over and over throughout life. Just because you have knowledge, there's a lot of very, very smart people that are incapable of making the right decision. So the synthesis of the two, the experience and the knowledge, can oftentimes lead to good judgment. Where do you get this thing from? If you're a new rep, please hear me out. Reach out to people that have been down this road before you. Use that phone. Have an open ear to hear. Learn from the old reps. I am still doing that to this day, and I'm an old rep. I was in a case the other week, and things got a little dicey in the middle of it, and I thought to myself, there's a friend of mine that has done a lot of these before me, and I bet you he has some advice for me. So I called him up in the middle of the case and got a download that really helped me get through it. You're never too old to reach out for this thing, and I think the moment you stop doing it is the moment you start dying as a rep. The acquisition of knowledge is huge. We need wisdom now, really, to discern things we can't change and what we can, and then offload all this stuff that we can't change and refuse to stress out about it because our family needs a voice of steady and calm. Our spouse needs steady and calm. Our customers need steady and calm. They're just as freaked out as everybody else is. And I want them to have their day improved by crossing paths with me today. Again, not in a phony, false, Pollyanna-ish way, but just, you know, we're going to get through this together and be that steady voice. Sometimes it's just the way you talk can bring that about. Today, we have the opportunity to access the wisdom of an employment attorney who's been doing this for a long time and has a lot of wisdom on the subject of non-competes. His name is Andy Anderson with the Horton Law Firm, and I think this is going to be awesome. It's going to be balanced. We're going to look at both sides of it so that you know what is your company's position on this, what needs to be your position on this. You know, my wife's in real estate, and she said there's two types of people, the people that come in and just sign anything and everything, and they don't even look at it. And then there's the people that look at every dot, every T, and analyze it. I think wisdom says we need to be more towards the latter and just know what you're getting into. And I think you're going to get some advice today on just what that looks like. So let's give a big Device Nation welcome to Andy Anderson. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. Andy, I'm very thankful uh, that you came on the show with us today. Uh, you are an employment attorney with the Horton Law Firm in Greenville, South Carolina. Uh, is that your main scope of practice? Do you do other things? I, I do other things. I, I have a, a litigation practice, but a large um, percentage of my practice is employment-related and a subset of employment is uh, non-compete law or non-solicitation law, and so I handle... Uh, you know, non-competes and non-solicitations as a part of my employment law practice. How long have you been doing that? I have been practicing law for almost 28 years. So I was admitted to the bar in 1992. And you are licensed to do this in South Carolina. Are you licensed to do it anywhere out of that state, or is it confined to that? So my bar license is uh, for sa- in South Carolina. So I only practice in South Carolina, although I I'm certainly can be associated in you know, other states, but 
but 99% of my practice would, would take place in South Carolina. Walk me through a non-compete, and then let's just talk about the whole right-to-work thing. So, so first of all, non-compete law will differ in each of the states, although there is a large overlap between the laws of each of those states. So even though South Carolina law is related to just South Carolina, uh, most of the states will have very similar uh, concepts and factors for enforcement, but the details may differ uh, a little from state to state. So this will, in general, apply to, to almost all the states. Uh, but anything I say, you know, specifically about a particular case may have particular re- um, uh, relevance in South Carolina. So with that kind of disclaimer, um, so what the courts say is that non-competes are disfavored, which means that they, they, they claim, anyway, not to want to enforce them because they limit competition. And um, we in South Carolina and the United States um, – uh, value competition, and so the courts say we don't we don't favor the enforcement of non-competes, but we'll we will enforce them if they're necessary for the protection of a legitimate interest. And so, you know, what does that really mean? Well, the courts will look at certain interests, whether it's protection of trade secrets or the protection of customer relationships, uh, and if they determine that it is necessary, a, a non-compete or a non-solution. A solicitation is necessary for the protection of trade secrets or, or a, um, a client base, then they will enforce non-competes that are reasonable. So, of course, that begs the question, what's reasonable? And, and for the most part, we're, we're looking at reasonable in time, reasonable in geographic scope, and reasonable in the, the, the sort of things that the, the agreement will prohibit a employee from doing uh, once they leave the employer. So those are the primary elements. And there are a couple of others, but most of the, the, the focus will be on the reasonableness of the time or the geographic scope. And let me let me put one other thing out here uh, at the outset, and then we'll let you ask some more questions. But So in a non-compete, a non-compete will be geographically limited. The courts have said, though, that a an existing customer limitation can substitute for a geographic limitation. So a non-solicitation, an agreement that prohibits solicitation of of, of former employer's customers, um, can substitute for a geographic limitation. So either you're going to have a geographic limitation in a non-compete or a customer limitation in the non-solicitation. I don't remember a lot of talk about non-competes earlier mm-hmm. in my career, and it just seems now I hear a lot about it. Is this a, a fairly contemporary phenomenon? It, it is. You know, so I practiced, started practicing law in 92, and, and, and they were, you know, they certainly were around in 92, but they made up a very small percentage of my practice. I didn't have a lot of, of, of uh, work that involved non-competes. The, the feeling were... Or, or was at the time, you know, they really weren't worth the paper they were written on, and I'm not really sure that was the case, but there really wasn't that much litigation. And I think what you see is as the economy has changed from, let's say, a manufacturing economy to, let's say, an information and service-based economy, that the protection of customers and the protection of information became, you know, more of a priority. 
and there has been a shift as well in in, in the judiciary, you know, and, and, and there seems to be more of a pro-business um, mindset in in the judiciary. So it, it's been viewed as pro-business to enforce non-competes. Now, I would say that is a pro-old uh, business, whereas new businesses, those that are formed by entrepreneurs or former employees of, a, of an employer who go out and start their own business, those are businesses too. And so I think you can have a pro-business mindset that favors entrepreneurs and, and, and you know, innovators. And, and so having uh, limitations on the ability to restrict a former employee's uh, post-employment activities uh, certainly could be viewed as, as, as pro-business. So I started seeing um, a, a, an uptick in, and these are generically referred to as restrictive covenants. So I've been, I've seen a, a, an uptick in restrictive covenants probably beginning about 15 years ago. And, and each year that passes, it does seem like there is more and more litigation involving these things. And, and I've seen these things proliferate where you, I've had a, a, a Kia, for example, a, 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 a Kia mechanic that was asked to sign a non-compete. I mean, so where it used to be more highly compensated employees, those in sales, uh, they really have taken off. Maybe some of your listeners have heard that even Jimmy John's required some of its delivery people to sign non-competes, which seems to me to be ludicrous, but that kind of gives you an idea of how this, this, um, these non-competes have um, become more prevalent over the last you know, 10 to 15 years. I imagine they filed those suits freaky fast. (laughs) I couldn't resist. I apologize for that. That was just so wrong. Uh, Consideration. Let's talk about that for a minute. I've seen scenarios where people were actually given money, and I've seen situations where, well, we were going to make a commission cut, but if, um, if you sign this, we won't. So there's really no exchange. But I guess there could be a technical form of consideration. Just, just walk me through all that. Yeah. So, so in addition to having to be reasonable, the non-compete has to be supported by valid and valuable consideration. Now, that can be in the eye of the beholder, and 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 really, each state does take a slightly different view. But certainly, South Carolina, which is borrowed from North Carolina, um, those two states' laws are extremely similar. And, and what you will see in general in the consideration idea is that you have to give an employee something of value. Now, if, if at the inception of employment, and that means at the, the, the formation of the employment relationship, um, the employee is required to sign a non-compete or non-solicit as a condition of employment, and that is done at the inception of employment, then, then the hiring of that employee by itself will constitute sufficient consideration to bind the employee to the agreement. But if it is after the inception of employment, then you've got to give the employee something else of value. And, and so participation in a, in a commission plan uh, that the employee has not previously been a participant in, uh, a, a bonus, additional vacation, um, those are things that would constitute additional consideration. Now, you know, one of the questions, and it really hasn't been answered, is whether there's something too small. You know, is 
you know, can you bind an employee to, you know, a multi-year non-compete by giving the employee a $50 check? My guess is yes. Um, but, uh, you know, those sorts of questions have not been answered. Um, you know, one of the, one of the, the, the most interesting area of, of litigation is what happens when an employee is given an offer letter that makes no mention of a non-compete. The employee quits their job and shows up at the employer, and on the first day they're presented with a non-compete and says, oh, yeah, you know, you need to sign this. And, of course, the employer would say, well, this is at the inception of employment. You know, there's some case law, in, including in, um, in North Carolina, that says, look, the, the contract's formed when the offer's made and the offer's accepted. And that's done in the exchange of the offer letter and the acceptance of the terms in the offer letter. And so that if you show up even on the first day of employment and are presented with a non-compete, then that might not be the inception of employment, and you're going to have to give that employee some additional consideration. And I've seen cases where somebody has, you know, moved down from Illinois to take this job. They've quit and moved their family, and so then they show up, and they have no, no choice in the matter at that stage. And we've had some success in getting those, uh, those non-competes to be held to be unenforceable. So that's really the way that issue presents itself. And, uh, it, it, the, you know, the flag that will tell an employee that, hey, this might be an issue is whether that employee signed that non-compete after the inception of employment. And then, then that's probably going to be at least an issue to examine. And, and let me just say this. If it is not supported by consideration, then that's an escape hatch. You know, the employee can get out of that non-compete because the non-compete's not valid, was never valid because there was no consideration to bind the employee. Walk me through what happens if you are fired. Uh, are you released from your non-compete, or is it still in place? So, so in most cases, uh, you will you, the non-compete itself will say um, that if so, you know this non-compete will be enforced for two years after the termination of employment for any reason. And so the, the, the terms of the non-compete itself will provide that regardless of the reason for termination, whether it's voluntary or involuntary the the non-compete will survive and 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 that is going to be the case uh being terminated uh will not by itself uh invalidate a non-compete unless the terms of the contract say so however if the employment contract places limitations on the ability to terminate so therefore let's say the termination itself constitutes a breach of the contract that contains the non-compete, there are courts that have held in those circumstances that the employer's breach by wrongfully terminating the employee can release the employee from his or her obligations under the non-compete. So it really will deter. So by itself, an involuntary termination doesn't invalidate a non-compete. But there may be circumstances, most prevalently this, this breach of contract, uh, that might kind of be an exception to this, this general rule. I'm not telling you anything you don't know, but in, in real estate law, we have this construct called uh, constructive eviction. And mm -hmm. if, I am, if I have a lease uh, 
that is a contract. However, the landlord has made the house completely uninhabitable. I can be released from that under the uh, premise of constructive eviction. So I've never had to challenge my non-compete because I like who I work for, and I've been doing the same thing for my whole career. But if they decided next week that, you know, we like you, Kevin, but we're only going to pay you $5 a year. And I'm just using that as a ridiculous example, but you're only going to be paid $5 a year from now on. Am I still going to have to move my family out of my area to, uh, to work out a non-compete or is there a, there's some type of clause that the law recognizes about constructive eviction, so to speak? Well, so there is a concept uh, of constructive discharge. And so this would be, um, when you, you, the employer takes some action, like the one you've mentioned, of, of a material reduction in compensation so that it is an effective discharge, even though it is not, let's say, an, you know, an actual discharge. I mean, they, they say, hey, you can still work here. You're just going to make $5 a week. Uh, and that would constitute um, a constructive discharge. What the courts have said is a constructive discharge is one that makes uh, continued work for an employer um, or the conditions of employment intolerable. And so, again, intolerability is somewhat in the eyes of the beholder, like a lot of these concepts are. Sure. So, but all constructive discharge does is, is, is it equates to an involuntary termination where one, you know, might not otherwise exist. But the same rule would apply to involuntary terminations and constructive discharge, which is a constructive discharge is not going to release you from your non-compete unless that constructive discharge constitutes a breach of the employment contract. Now, there, there is, you know, there's certainly some areas where it does provide some argument. So one in, in particular that I've had is where you have, let's say, a female employee who is sexually harassed, and that employee is subjected to daily sexual harassment, which creates an intolerable um, working conditions. And so that employee quits because she's tired of being subjected to this intolerable working condition. And there are arguments, and now there's one that we can refer to as unclean hands. So when someone, when an employer goes to court and says, Your Honor, I want you to enforce this non-compete and prevent this employee from working for a competitor because it violates the terms of the employment contract, one of the things these courts will, will say is, well, you've got to come to this court with clean hands. You can't have acted wrongfully on the one hand, but then ask the court to do equity for you on the other. And so in these sexual harassment situations, you may find a court that would say, listen, you've got a legal obligation to prevent sexual harassment. You've allowed an intolerable situation to arise and subject this employee to unlawful harassment. And so we're not going to enforce your non-compete because you haven't acted in good faith. You haven't acted justly. You haven't complied with the law. So we're not going to enforce your non-compete. So that would be an example of a potential constructive discharge situation that can invalidate or at least prevent the enforcement of the non-compete. So there's a lot of different situations, and you can imagine some where, again, employees or employers just act wrongfully. Um, 
where a court may say, well, yeah, you've got a you've got a piece of paper that says you can prevent this employee from working, but we're not going to allow you to do that because of your own wrongful conduct. So that would be one thing if you're going to so if you're an employee and you've got a non compete and you've had an employer act particularly wrongfully, you can you know you should you should bring that up to your lawyer and say, look, this is this is the circumstances of my termination. Might this help me? beat my non-compete. So let's pretend we're in law school and you're having to get in front of the class and do a real quick defense of both sides. So yep. walk me through how you would defend the, the company's interest side of it and then what your thoughts would be to argue against that. I'm just a, just a point-counterpoint sure. point type thing. So you can So if you take... Let's say you have an employer who's you know hired an employee, trained the employee, invested some money in the training of the employee, um, exposed that employee to you know either confidential business information, trade secrets, customer information, and introduced that employee to its customers. Then the employer would argue that listen, your honor, we we've hired this employee. We, we trained them, we invested a lot of money in them, and, and now they want to take that training, they want to take those contacts, and now they want to use that against us and compete uh, for our business and for our customers. And that just doesn't seem fair. And what non-competes are designed to do, in theory, is to prevent unfair competition. And unfair competition would be, look, if you know my pricing, for example, and that pricing is somewhat unique to me, and now you have my pricing list, even if it's in between your ears, even if you don't even have you don't have it on your computer, you don't have it on your phone, or you didn't take the pieces of, you know, the documentation with pricing, but you know my pricing, you know my formula. But now you're going to be able to take that information and gain an unfair advantage because you're going to be able to undercut my pricing that, those would be the sorts of, of, of reasons that an uh, employer would use to justify the need for a non-compete. Now, on the flip side, what I would argue is that, first of all, in a lot of situations, and I would say in most, especially when we're dealing with customers, uh, if, if customers are the, the thing that the employer wants to protect, you know, my argument would be, first of all, you don't need a non-compete a non-solicitation should suffice. So, you know, I can, I can work in any geographic territory. I just can't go out and solicit your customers. So that would be one way to maybe peel back the non-compete. On the non-solicitation side, what you will also see is employers will say, not only do I want to restrict you from contacting my customers, but I want to restrict you from contacting my former customers or my prospective customers. And there's case law out there that says, you know, this gets beyond this legitimate interest. You know, there's you certainly have an interest in protecting, let's say, your, your current client base. But if you've got people that you've never served, although they may have been solicited, or they may have been people that you served a year ago, but they're no longer an active employee, that you don't have any legitimate interest in preventing someone from going after uh, clients or, or business that you don't even – um, service anymore. Uh, and on the other hand, you also have, from an employee standpoint, the argument that, listen, I need to be able to make a living. 
and competition's a good thing. And certainly I can be restricted in using your pricing information or your trade secrets, so you can prevent me from using that information. But I should be able to compete in the, in the, in the marketplace for your business, and if you can't keep that business, then that's your own problem. And so, you know, those are a couple of a couple of comebacks from an employee side. And so, there's there will be you know multitude of variations of the, the, these employer justifications and these employee responses. But those would be that would be kind of a, a summary of the back and forth that you might hear from both sides. What would be a middle ground sentence or something in a non-compete that would protect both parties' interest? Uh, a King Solomon solution to this whole thing? Well, look, a couple that I've come come up with would be one that would that may prohibit an employer from terminating your employment and forcing the non-compete. I would think that would be something that could help balance the uh, playing field. Uh, so I'm going to give you a couple more, a little bit more than one. The the um, another. Uh, would be maybe to limit the non-competes to you know highly compensated employees, and 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 finally, I think one that would say, listen, if I'm going to have a six-month non-compete that's going to keep you on the sidelines, then I'd have to give you six-month severance. You know, if, if I'm going to if I'm going to continue to essentially tie up and your labor and your expertise, I shouldn't be able to do that for free. So that if it's important enough for me to keep you on the sidelines, then I should have to pay you something for that. And I see that there, there are, there are, and they're they're certainly the the the, the minority. But you will see there are non-competes that will say, look, if we decide to, and I've even seen some of the medical device uh, that say, look, if you, if you can't find a job because of your non-compete, then we have the option of releasing you from that non-compete or paying you. Now, you know, the problem is, is they'll say, well, we don't believe this is preventing you from getting a job, and therefore we're not going to pay you, and you got to sue to get your money. And that's, you know, that's a whole other battle. But I do think making employers pay something uh, to enforce that. And then, and then finally, the thing we talked about, whether or not, I think if a, if, if a state or, you know, federal government passed a law that said if either party can collect their attorney's fees, then both parties ought to be able to collect their attorney's fees if they win. These one-sided non-competes that said, hey, if we sue you and we win, we get our attorney's fees, but if we lose, then screw you. You know, there ought to be, that's, again, this idea of trying to balance the inequity. And so I would think there's something that would, because listen, I mean, an employer that's going to have to worry about paying the employee's lawyer and their own will pause um, before they take on uh, a non-compete base. One of the scariest things you can get in the mail is a letter from the IRS because they have unlimited resources to come after right. you, right? And, and I've heard from reps over the years from all companies is the, one of the biggest hurdles uh, financially is the, the legal resources that companies bring to bear in these situations would yep can bankrupt uh, your normal sales rep on the street. Is there any uh, relief in that respect, uh, the ability to recover 
your legal fees in case the court sided with you? Not normally. Now, normally you're only going to be able to recover attorney's fees if the agreement itself says you can recover them. Most of these agreements are going to be written by the employer, so they provide for an employer's ability to collect their legal fees if they if they have to, to enforce them or if they prevail. But there are some contracts that will uh, include you know, language that uh, the prevailing party is entitled to their legal fees. And, and so if an employee uh, fights a non-compete as the prevailing party and the contract provides for attorney's fees in that situation, then the employee can can collect those. But that is the exception and not the rule, um, which really leads to a, you know, maybe to a, a larger point and, and that relates to attorney's fees and to, you know, all these issues, which is, you know, you never have more leverage as an employee than the day before you start. The employer, employer is going to want, you know, they want your services. They want your, either your skills. You may have some customer contacts that you bring with you. And this idea that, well, I'll just sign this thing. These things aren't enforced or, you know, I'll just figure it out later is really uh, an approach that's going to lead to the problems that you, you, um, you mentioned, this inability to fight Goliath. And so one way to protect yourself against that is to say, well, listen, let me, I don't like these things, but I'm willing to sign one, but negotiate. Hire you a lawyer at the front end. It's much, it's much cheaper to hire a lawyer to help you negotiate a more fair non-compete than it is to hire a lawyer to fight one that has your signature already on it. And so once you've signed the thing, you've signed away a good bit of your leverage. And so, you know, and especially, you know, we'll call them all-star employees. You know, if you, if you're an employee that's in high demand, you've got a track record of sales success. You've got uh, maybe your own customer base or contacts in the, you know, the, 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 the medical device field, then use that as leverage and hire you a lawyer and say, listen, how can we make this more fair? And one of the ways you can make it more fair is to, to add a prevailing party provision to your agreement so that if you have to fight, there's some reasonable chance that if you win, you can collect your attorney's fees. I was going to ask you if you had any parting advice for the reps listening to this program, and I think you just gave it. That's, uh, that's really good stuff. Before we let you go, is there anything else? I mean, any pearls? You're, you're talking to a bunch of medical device sales reps. Uh, anything that you could throw out there beyond engagement with an attorney beforehand? Yeah, well, the, the one thing I would say is be sp- when, you dis- when you do decide to leave, you know, be smart. I can't t- tell you how many times I get an employee to come see me, and they, you know, they certainly got a, they've got a non-compete that has some, some holes in it, and there's some opportunity to challenge it. But then you discover that this particular employee emailed themselves a customer list, emailed themselves a PowerPoint that contain, contained product information, um, you know, downloaded uh, information from, you know, their employer's intranet. And that presents an entirely different set of issues. And if you've taken information, even, again, even if you think you're, you're some, for some reason entitled to it, you're really going to make life much more difficult. And so you're better off leaving without 
anything in your hands or in your in your phone or that you've emailed to yourself because those those things will come back to bite you and will provide an additional basis for a court to grant an injunction. One other just related piece of advice, which is what you need to realize is that if you end up in litigation, then one of the things that the employer is going to do is they're going to essentially subpoena. They're going to be able to obtain emails that you exchanged with your new employer in the, in the negotiation process with them. And so if you've got things that you've emailed to the uh, to your new employer, whether it's information or whether it's just, hey, uh, don't worry, I'm going to be able to go get all these customers, or if you hire me, I'll make sure we, we get this, this, um, this customer or that customer, those communications may be discovered. So I would minimize negotiation of my next job uh, via email. I would make sure that those emails – uh, will not hurt me if a judge reads them. And I would assume that everything I write from a text message to an email is going to be read by a judge, jury, or my former employer. And I would make sure that I wouldn't say anything that I wouldn't want read in open court. And so those would probably be a couple of additional tips on the back end that I think will, will serve employees well as they try to move forward and, and earn uh, their, their best living. Andy Arnold with the Horton Law Firm in Greenville, South Carolina. How do they get up with you uh, to engage you on your services, questions? Yep. So if you've got a non-compete that involves, you know, certainly a South Carolina employer, uh, you know, I'm probably going to be able to, to, to help some of those folks. And so you can reach me at Horton Law Firm. You, you can call uh, 864-233-4351 is our phone number. Uh, my email address is a arnold at hortonlawfirm.net so make sure you get the net that'll that'll throw you off and you can check out my blog i have a blog sc uh, non-compete lawyer so it's sc non-compete lawyer.com and that has a lot of information about some of the things we talked about here and 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 and, and, and even more so uh those will be different ways somebody can get in touch with me. and if i can help them i certainly will and if i can't i'll try to point them in the right direction I always laugh when I tell people I'm from Greenville, North Carolina, and they miss that last little part, and they go, oh, that's the most beautiful place in the world. And I know immediately they're confused because nobody would ever say that about Greenville, North Carolina. Uh, that's just a beautiful area uh, you live. I, it I is. I love going up there and just wandering around the downtown area there. I just tell everybody, you got to see this place. It's just beautiful. And, and this time of year will we'll, we'll be the best. I really, really appreciate you coming on and speaking to uh, the Device Nation audience. I know they're going to get a lot out of that. I did as well. I learned, I learned a lot today, and I'm really thankful that you took time out of your schedule to talk to us. Well, I appreciate you having me. Have a great day, sir. You too. You know, I'm a one-hit wonder from the 80s, done basically the same job with the same company for all my adult life, so non-competes aren't something I'm completely attuned to. However, I know that was awesome information, and I'm sure that a lot of you got something out of that. So let's get through this next week, take it one day at a time, thinking about doing a Zoom video chat for all of us uh, that want to get together this week, and just keep up with each other, see what's going on at your hospitals, and, and just how things are going. You know, we need each other during things like this and just stay close, 
and uh, and we're going to see it to the other side. So I wish you all the best. You're all in my prayers, and be safe, and I'll see you next week. Device Nation.